0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to the podcast against disease brought to you by Humanity Against Disease. Today we have the honor of sitting down with Dr. Paul Nestat, who is a psychiatrist at Hopkins. And Dr. Nestat, can you give us a brief introduction to who you are?
1: Sure. I'm an assistant professor at Johns Hopkins in the Department of Psychiatry and uh, also in the School of Public Health. I study suicide and specifically the practical factors that go into suicide completion, which generally in America tends to be firearm access and use of substances like opioids. (laughs) Also, I am still Cody
2: Weston. But thank you for joining us, Paul. So today we wanted to talk a lot about suicide. And I know a few months ago, there was a lot of talk with the NRA coming down and trying to tell doctors that we should mind our own business about this firearm access issue. How
1: did that make you feel given that this was something that you were already passionate about? Well, I mean... It didn't bother me that much. I'm an academic. I study this topic. What various lobbyist groups have to say doesn't have a big impact on, on my research. I think it was inspiring to see the response that the NRA got to the stay out of my lane comments. Yeah. my um. (laughs) (laughs) I actually happened to be at the AJPH, at the American Public Health Conference around that time, soon after that actually, and the Surgeon General was there giving a talk. And he is someone that I don't think had commented on this issue of firearm access as a medical or public health issue yet. And I think it was the NRA's foray into that Mm -hmm. that kind of forced his hand. And at Mm. that conference he did say, you know, this is my lane. I'm a trauma anesthesiologist. I deal with gunshot wounds this is my lane. Hmm. And I think that he might not have had to do that or been willing to do that politically if he hadn't been forced to. So, you know, maybe it had a good impact. Maybe it didn't. I'm not a politician. Hmm. Um, I just study the facts. And so the NRA doesn't concern me very much.
2: Gotcha. Yeah, you bring up an interesting point that bringing the attention to it can be positive, even if the, the original thrust of the comments was, as we will likely see, contrary to what the evidence is, is showing. It does sound like a good thing that we have begun to discuss this more openly. So let's talk a little bit about what you have found out about the predictors of suicide. You said gun possession and opiate use are major risk factors that have come up.
1: Well, psychiatric illness obviously is a tremendous Risk factors, suicide, but among psychiatric illnesses, none have as significant of an impact as substance dependence. And right now, we're in the middle of an opiate crisis, and so, along with alcohol, opiates have become one of the major things worth looking at. Mm-hmm. In general, you know, suicide is multifactorial; it's a behavior, mm-hmm. and so that makes it both very difficult to predict and difficult to prevent. There are some things about suicide that we that are unavoidable. We know that suicide rates are higher in certain demographics: white men around yeah. age 50. Uh, we're not going to be able to change that in our patients. But there are some things we can change. One of those is we can treat mental illnesses. Psychiatric illness is present in about 90% of completed suicides. Hmm. So we can, we can treat mental illness. They're eminently treatable. Yeah. You and I do it for a living. Absolutely. <laughs> um, but we can also address other modifiable risk factors like access to guns and other lethal means. I mean, I talk about guns because I happen to be in the United States right now. But traditionally, lethal means have varied from country to country and culture to culture. And as the most readily accessible, most fatal, most lethal means have been addressed, they've seen suicide rates go down in those individual countries or Mm -hmm. cultures. I could go on a tangent. I guess you can edit it and decide how much you want. But Please. For instance, I think that some of the best research was done in the UK. Mm -hmm. Kreitman et al. studied coal gas back in the 20th century, the middle 20th century, putting your head in the oven was a common way to die by suicide. So Sylvia Plath, most famously. Because everybody had an oven in their house and the ovens at the time were powered by coal, which meant Mm -hmm. that they were carbon monoxide producing. So you'd lay your head in the oven, obviously the oven's not on, and let the gas run and you'd go to sleep. Mm -hmm. So it's a very lethal, very painless and convenient way because everyone's got one in the kitchen to die by suicide. So... In the 60s, they started switching over from coal gas to natural gas ovens, unrelated to suicide, probably for economic Mm -hmm. reasons. And as they rolled these new sorts of ovens and, and gas supplies out across the UK, across Scotland, Wales, and England... The suicide rates by coal gas, by carbon monoxide, dropped, obviously, Mm -hmm. because it just wasn't around as much. But also there was no replacement by other means, or very little replacement. So Mm -hmm. the overall suicide rates, if you follow it county by county, year by year, as Kreitman did in some beautiful graphs I guess you can't show on a podcast. Maybe we can set a reference up. Yeah, absolutely. You can see the suicide rate going down. That was because in the UK it was coal gas. In the UK, fast forward to the late 20th century, people mm-hmm. were doing a lot of overdosing on paracetamol, basically Tylenol. Yeah, And there was some sense that because suicide is an impulsive act, people that would have a big bottle of paracetamol in their house, mm-hmm. as many people did, could just sort of chug it. And, and once again, accessible, lethal, convenient. Yeah. And so people like Keith Hott and other suicide researchers in the UK were able to successfully lobby for paracetamol would be packaged differently instead mm-hmm. of a big bottle of, of paracetamol if you bought it in any pack more than 16 pills mm-hmm. it had to come in bubble wrap you know that stuff where you have to stick mm-hmm. your fingernail in yeah. and pop it out you know so they this was you know the pharmaceutical companies it cost them some money to have to package it differently yeah. but the law was passed and the suicide rate dropped by i want to say 22 or 23% wow. and yeah. stayed down the, the poisoning suicide rate yeah just mm-hmm. a little thing of having to spend the extra 6 minutes or whatever it took yeah. to just pop out 16 pills yeah And that that speaks
2: to the idea that impulsivity is such a major factor. I remember hearing an anecdote that a survivor of someone who had attempted suicide by jumping off a bridge, they said they may have been embellishing a little bit, but they said when their foot left the bridge, they realized that every problem in their life
1: was fixable except for jumping off the bridge. Oh, yeah. The impulsivity piece is Perhaps one of the biggest misunderstandings that exists in the suicide, for, for lay people, suicide, not realizing how impulsive it is. Yeah. You're absolutely correct. So there's this, you know, this narrative,
0: mm-hmm. you know, someone
1: has been thinking about suicide and they finally you know, decide they're going to do it and they write a note and they fill the bathtub and put some roses. In reality, the vast majority are very impulsive. There was a really excellent study, there's been several excellent studies, but one that gets quoted a lot. Found that about 24 percent of people that, that attempt suicide, highly phality attempts, not superficial attempts, um, made the decision to do so within five minutes, wow. and about 81 percent within 24 hours, mm-hmm. about 74 percent within an hour. This uh-huh. is from interviewing people that you know, had been hospitalized for attempts that really should have ended their lives and they survived and they were interviewed. That sort of impulsivity then plays out in situations like you were describing. The bridge jumper. Yeah, It's funny to mention a bridge because some of the best studies were done with bridge jumpers. Mm-hmm. There's two studies I think about a lot in terms of the impulsivity of suicide. You know, because it's impulsive mm-hmm. is the very reason that the means that you use do matter, mm-hmm. right? If suicide was something that people didn't do impulsively that mm-hmm. was a, a strongly considered and a lengthy considered act, you could find a way to end your life. Oh, absolutely. You know, you don't have to have an oven in your house. You can, you know, find some other way. But the fact is that it's impulsive and the impulse passes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You, the story you told about a man who had a revelation as he was setting his foot off the bridge is a common one that mm-hmm. we hear from attempters. But also, you know, I'm not an anecdote guy. I'm a mm-hmm. data guy. Yeah. One really good way to look at that is to, first of all, ask people about this myth. Mm-hmm. Matt Miller and his group did that. They, they asked people about jumping off a bridge. They asked Americans in general. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay,
1: if you, do you think that if someone was about to jump off a bridge, but they were stopped, would they stop from killing themselves? Yeah. Would they just go on and find some other way? and he found that the majority of people, I think it was three-quarters of people, said almost or certainly they would just find some other way to do it. And this was really telling because mm-hmm. this was sort of revealing this this idea, this this myth that, that people have that suicide is something that you set your mind to and you keep doing it. Yeah. Emmy Betts went back and used Matt Miller's same survey techniques, mm-hmm. and she surveyed specifically ER physicians and ER nurses, mm-hmm. the people that if you make a suicide attempt, they're the people you're going to see. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And she asked them the same question, and similarly they said, yes, if if we stop somebody, mm-hmm. they're just going to find some other way. This is dangerous because these are people deciding whether to hospitalize yeah. people or not after an attempt. Yeah. So she found that. Now the reason that Matt Miller and his group decided to ask a question about the bridge uh-huh. was because a study had been done on Golden Gate Bridge jumpers. A group had followed 515 people that had wow. made that had been stopped from jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge, Mm -hmm. that had been physically restrained. Either they were caught in the scaffolding or a a police officer had actually pulled them Uh off. So this is a highly validated thing. This isn't like superficial cuts to your wrist. And they followed these 515 people for a median of 26 years after the attempt and found that less than 5% of them, it was close, 4.9% of them, ever went on to die by suicide. So if you're stopped, you get help. Similarly, Donaldson's group looked in the U.K., at people that had jumped in front of the tube, the subway, mm-hmm. you know, so just like in New York, the, the subway there has a gap between the rails. So if mm-hmm. you jump in, if you jump in front of the train, you're likely to die. That's a highly lethality attempt. But mm-hmm. if you twist your ankle, fall in between the rails, train passes over you, you survive. They followed almost 100 people for about 10 years, and once again found the vast minority. In that case, it was about nine percent. Everyone on to reattempt and die by suicide. Hmm. So this is really an act that's not only impulsive, uh-huh. but one where if you survive, you're very unlikely to go on to die by suicide. Some people do, You know, 4% in one case, 9% in another, but the majority do not, Mm -hmm. which is why what you choose to do matters so much. If you choose to overdose on Tylenol, that has about a 2% fatality rate in suicide, Mm -hmm. which means that you'll probably get your stomach pumped, you'll probably be okay, and and by getting into the emergency room, you'll get help Mm -hmm. and you'll get better. Mm -hmm. But if what you choose to use is a firearm, well, your firearm has about an 86% fatality rate yeah. And so you won't get a chance to get help to get mm-hmm. better, you know the majority of people, about sixty percent of people that die by suicide have never attempted before. Mm. You know, wow. this is really an impulse, and that's why means matter
2: yeah and that that's something that's really eye opening because I think without looking at the data, it is easy to think that this is something that people have resolved to do over a, a long period of time. And it's really interesting that that is not what's borne out by the Yeah, data. it
1: doesn't play out that way. And that's not to say that there aren't some people that do. Yeah, right? I mean, this is a heterogeneous mm-hmm. behavior, and there are all kinds of ways people arrive at being suicidal and arrive at suicide. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But the vast majority, the typical case, is an impulsive act, often under the influence of a substance, mm-hmm. sometimes not, almost always under the influence of a mental illness. Yeah. Often depression because depression is so common, but schizophrenia has a higher rate of suicide than depression. It's just less common. Substance abuse yeah. has the highest rate. Yeah, and with a lot of
2: substance use having its own risk of death, that's got to be an even more complex phenomenon.
1: Yeah, that's actually where my research is right now. It mm-hmm. might not be the topic for this podcast, but oh, this idea that. that you know we've got the opiate crisis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Deaths are in the 70,000 a year now. But we talk about the opiate deaths, the overdoses, as if they're all accidents. But research has shown, actually I had a paper in PLOS one that mm-hmm. has shown that 30% or thereabouts of the opiate overdoses that are called accidents or mm-hmm. undetermined are actually suicides. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard for a medical examiner or a coroner to make the call. They find mm-hmm. someone overdosed. If they left a note, okay, great, that's an easy call to make. Mm-hmm. But only about 25% of people that die by suicide do leave a note, regardless of method. Yeah. So those other cases. So we're, we should be worried about the opiate epidemic mm-hmm. and yeah. the people that accidentally take too much or don't recognize their tolerance has gone down after... But a lot of those are suicides.
2: Yeah, and I'd love to take some time to talk about the opiate problem and how we can sort of reduce some of the harm from that as well. But this is also a topic that's near and dear to me. As we've discussed in the past, one of my patients that I cared very much for ended up passing away from an opioid overdose. And I'll never know whether it was intentional or not. Mm She went through a lot of hardship as a result of this substance use problem. And this relapse came completely out of nowhere. I still have the last email she sent me like six days prior. She was talking about doing her own vlog about the experiences she'd had. So that again speaks to this idea of impulsivity as well. And as, as a sort of extension to this idea, so both firearms and opiates have one thing in common, which is that they carry within them the promise of a painless suicide, whether it's true or not. And I've, spoken with a lot of patients over the course of my training so far that say that the main reason they wouldn't try to take their own life is because of they don't want to screw up and end up in pain or end up maimed, as one of them put it. Do you think that there's any way that we can use that information to dissuade people from attempting? You right, mean to- sort of describe
1: how it's not always painless?
2: As you said, firearm-based suicide attempts are extremely lethal. There's still a great potential for other outcomes that can be more devastating than even dying to the patient and their families. Yeah. I think it, it's, a,
1: it's an interesting idea, and I think that the more barriers, both physical and psychological, that we can put up between the suicidal thoughts and suicide attempt mm-hmm. and completion, the better. However, you, know, you and I both know from talking to patients that are really suicidal that they're often not worried about pain. They're, they're in tremendous pain. I mean, these patients... Almost always have a mental illness, like I said, about 90%, yeah. often depression, and that is a psychic pain that, for many of these patients, dwarfs any concern they have about some physical pain. It's, that might not be the best pathway to take. I think it probably couldn't hurt. I think you want to put up as many barriers as possible, but uh, but no. People that are making these suicide attempts are struggling. The problem is that, as we know about depression, depression makes things seem hopeless. It makes it seem like you're not going to get better. But we know that 80% of people respond to the first treatment that you give them. That depression, even if there's no treatment, is an episodic illness, that it will get better. And even people that know that, psychiatrists that suffer from depression, you lose that in the midst of that episode. And so it's sort of this misunderstanding. I was in Key West a couple of weeks ago. And I got a chance to visit Hemingway's house down there. Mm-hmm. And many, most people know that Hemingway died by suicide, by shotgun. I hadn't realized until I heard the, the tour guide there tell the story, and then I looked into it. You know, he, He'd been suffering from depression for a long time, probably bipolar, mm-hmm. but certainly at least serious uh, depressive episodes. And he'd been getting ECT. Mm-hmm. So he'd been struggling with depression mm-hmm. and alcoholism his whole life, but he, was, he, had, he had finally decided to get ECT and, it, and he'd had, I want to say, six or seven sessions, mm. which we know is, is a good start. Uh-huh. Yeah. And he, not long after his most recent session, you know, he was recognizing some of the side effects of ECT, some of the temporary side effects, which are memory loss. And ECT will often cause memory loss, but mm-hmm. almost always temporary. Oh, it's yeah. very rarely sustained. And temporary meaning you know a few days, a few weeks. Mm-hmm. And he had been a little confused because he'd been getting ECT, and maybe it hadn't been explained to him or he'd forgotten, but he'd gotten the sense that his memory was gone forever. There's a famous quote, uh, uh, something along the lines of, you've cured the disease but you've lost the patient or something mm, like that, mm. where he felt like he was his memories, Hemingway was his experiences. Uh-huh. And because his memories were gone, he decided to kill himself because there's nothing left of me. Now, of course, it was a misunderstanding. Yeah. If he'd have waited a couple of days, there he is back. And that's an extreme example, but that's how I see suicide in a lot of cases. It's just this, this misunderstanding caused by depression yeah. that makes people feel like they're never going to get better. When all the evidence says that they will, yeah. mm-hmm. and they say, well, if I'm never going to get better, I can't live this way. And then they'd make this impulsive decision. <laughs> right. the, the bottom line <laughs> is great. it's this impulsive thing <laughs> that we need to work as psychiatrists to educate the population, to remind mm-hmm. people to remind their suffering loved ones Ones, that they will get better. But in the meantime, we need to limit any way that a person has in that confused, impulsive, dangerous state of ending their lives rapidly.
2: Yeah,
1: And, and that's guns. If we were in Sri Lanka, it would be pesticides. Mm. If we were in the UK in the 60s, it'd be cold gas ovens. Mm. But here's guns. Yeah. And I wanted to talk a little bit about the, and we'll get back to, to those questions, but A
2: little bit about the false dichotomy between treating or dealing with the mental illness problem and also dealing with the gun access problem because I feel like that's often put up politically and it seems to me that there's no reason that one can't approach suicide prevention from every possible angle.
0: Yeah,
1: obviously it's a multifactorial behavior. You have to have a multi-pronged approach for Mm -hmm. prevention. Certainly you want to treat mental illness and mental illness is present in the majority of suicide cases. Mm -hmm. You want to be doing that. You also want to be limiting access to means you will be doing everything you can because suicide rates have reached crisis proportions. Yeah, uh, we've had about a twenty-five or thirty percent increase in the twenty-first century in the United States. Suicide rates wow. are now fourteen per hundred thousand per year. Suicide has become it has been the top in the top ten causes of death in the United States for a long time. It's the second leading cause of death in anyone under forty in the United States. Mm-hmm. The second wow. leading. Like if there are pediatricians listening to this, pediatricians are the thing that's killing their patients. Is not the you know, lymphomas—they're checking CBCs for. It's suicide. That's hmm. what kills kids. It's, it, the only thing ranked higher than that are unintentional accidents, which, as I said, many of which are suicides. Suicide. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But among the top ten causes of death in all age groups, yeah. only three of them are going up. We're doing a great job decreasing rates of heart disease, mm-hmm. decreasing cancer fatality, but accidents, suicide, and Alzheimer's are going up. Hmm. We don't have any treatments for Alzheimer's. Yeah, but. Accidents and suicide are preventable causes of death, and they're the ones going up. So it's a crisis. So everything that we can do to prevent this, it's going to involve increased access to mental health care, Mm -hmm. and increased developments of better treatments, but mostly access. And, of course, decreasing access to legal
2: means. Yeah, And the access to mental health care is a frustrating factor to me, because I've seen a lot of people avoid getting mental health treatment because of the stigma, because of the cost and it seems to me that we should be pulling out all the stops to allow
1: that to to happen to get people in well yeah i think any anyone that that treats illness of any nature will will agree with that 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 they're treatable and therefore we need people to get treated yeah but it's you know it's complicated
2: economically it's over my head yeah yeah these (laughs) issues i can never really quite wrap my head around them people are One of my patients was asking me insurance questions earlier today, and I was like, I I wish I knew.
1: (laughs) Oh, I'm glad I don't know. I don't want to know how the sausage is made. (laughs) Bring me a patient, I will treat them. I don't want to know if they have Aetna or whatever. (laughs) Yeah, this is fair.
0: (laughs) So to start off, kind of a related question, what is the effect of gun possession in suicide risk?
1: It's a tremendous increase in risk. So there's been some good studies. Engelmeyer did a study that found that having a gun in the house increases your risk of dying by suicide 3.2 times, Wow! controlling for other things. Mm -hmm. Back to Matt Miller, who I mentioned before, one of my heroes in this research, him and Deb Asriel, Kathy Baker, did a great study where they compared areas of the country that had high gun ownership, Mm -hmm. metropolitan statistical areas that had high gun ownership, meaning about 30% or so of households had guns, to ones that had lower gun ownership. I think it was like 13% had guns. Mm -hmm. And they found that controlling for everything you'd imagine to control for, demographics, et cetera, Mm -hmm. they're good epidemiologists, they found that there's a 50% increase in suicide rates in areas with high gun ownership, and that's general population. But specifically kids, Mm -hmm. the children, the child rate of suicide almost doubled, about 90%, um, when there was a a high gun ownership area versus a low gun ownership area. Mm -hmm. And this might be because kids have less options. Right? If, you're, if you don't have a driver's license, if you're unable to drive to that bridge or whatever, then even more it matters what you have mm-hmm. in the house. If in you know, mom's nightstand there's Tylenol, that's what you might use, once again, 2% fatality rate, if what you have is a gun in the nightstand, then um, that's what you use in 86% fatality rate. Mm-hmm. And this is another important thing that we have to think about is, is that ability of a kid to get someone else's gun mm-hmm. or someone in crisis to get their gun, which kind of brings me to an obvious topic that I, that might come up in a question later, but just to say that it's the locking up of guns, even if you're not, Mm -hmm. you know, nobody wants to take people's guns away, Mm -hmm. but in a crisis or if you're at risk at all, it's so important to make sure that those guns are locked away Mm -hmm. by someone you trust. Only about 30% of parents that have guns in the house Mm -hmm. and and kids in the house actually store their guns safely. Mm -hmm. Only about a third. I think the actual number is thirty-two mm-hmm. percent, if I'm remembering a Cascar study correctly. Of parents whose kids have a mental illness diagnosed, mm-hmm. the percentage of them that lock their guns up goes up as it should, but only to thirty four percent. Wow. Oh, it's wow. nothing. Right. Yeah. You think that especially if you know your kid has a mental illness of some sort, mm-hmm. this is time to lock up the gun. But people don't think about this as much. Yeah. Wow. So I think it would be a good idea. Can we cover a little bit
2: what the guidelines are as you understand them for storing guns safely for people who do have
1: them for hunting or other purposes? Yeah, there are plenty of reasons for people to have guns. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But there's no reason not to store them safely. And when I say safely, I mean locked up, separate than the ammunition so that there's that, that fail safe. Mm-hmm. And there are many options. So some people have trigger locks. Mm-hmm. Trigger locks are very affordable, mm-hmm. like $4. In fact, most of the time when you buy a gun, mm-hmm. it'll come with a trigger lock, you know, yeah, brand it. Yeah, I think in, in Michigan, it's mandated for certain gun purchases that they give you a trigger lock with it. Yeah. And like you, you know, you see the trash cans outside gun stores are just full of these trigger locks, just like just like the packaging. Hmm. But you know, and, and trigger locks are okay, mm-hmm. and they're one more barrier. Like I said, even plastic wrapping your paracetamol helps,
0: mm-hmm. yeah.
1: but they're not hard to get around. To be honest, uh, with some wire cutters. Things like lockboxes are really good. They're a little bit more expensive. Yeah. The advantage of lockboxes, though, are that if you're in a crisis, you can mm-hmm. lock up not just the guns from your mm-hmm. loved one in a crisis, but also maybe medicines that might be dangerous. Mm. Like they have to be taking lithium because they're being treated with it, but overdose on lithium is worrying, so you can put that in the lockbox. Mm. And then among lockboxes, there's a whole range, depending on how much you're willing to spend, mm. where you're trading off convenience mm-hmm. uh, for security, as is always the trade off. Yeah. Right? So some of them are fingerprint activated. and... Some of them sort of are spring loaded, so that you know, if you have your gun for protection, you can run over to there and get your fingerprint on there; it'll
0: pop mm. the gun out.
1: But it's there's a cost to that, mm. um, and especially if you have long guns. Long guns require much bigger safes,
0: mm-hmm. that kind of thing.
1: And and so there's a right and a wrong way to be a gun owner. Mm-hmm. And in fact, you know, we mentioned the NRA earlier. Currently, they're a lobbying organization, but they started out as an organization that was all about gun safety. They said, "Listen, Americans have guns." Mm-hmm they should know how to use them. And so, you know, you see these old NRA videos. They're about training to use a gun correctly and about locking your gun up. They were Mm -hmm. the biggest advocates for locking your gun up of anyone out there Mm -hmm. because it makes sense. They don't want their constituents being
0: hurt. Yeah, Yeah.
1: And it's sort of been lost a little bit as it's become more political. Yeah, and that is a bummer. I mean, I come
2: from Michigan and I came from a culture that's very, it was suburban to rural and basically everyone in, in lower Michigan or at least the vast majority were either hunters or they were associated with hunters and benefiting from eating venison and this kind of thing. So it is really interesting to think about how that has affected our risk as a community and how we can deal with that. And it's it's really sad to hear that the gun safety is being so poorly practiced because part of hunter safety is this idea it's really drilled into your head that you should always handle these things safely. They are lethal. But the time that I went through hunter safety, they didn't say really anything about suicide risk or
1: these kinds of things, which I feel like that would have been a good teachable moment to bring that kind of thing up. I think one of the reasons it hasn't been emphasized in the past that more and more it is is because of this this myth, this idea that no, suicide is not about the means you use. Mm. You know, why would I lock up my gun if if someone wanted to kill themselves? They mm-hmm. would just find some other way. Which we I hope debunked earlier on yeah. this podcast. But it's hard because. Gun culture has become such a politicized and polarizing thing yeah, that sure. that now it's almost some people on the right might consider it an act of activism almost to to not lock up or lock up your gun right like i 'll leave my gun unlocked to own the libs kind mm-hmm. of thing you know what i mean um, and, and that's that 's a little bit worrisome right? mm-hmm. and there's this this idea like you know, this is what they want me to do on the other side of the political aisle, and it 's a problem i mean anything becoming politicized is is Detrimental to facts,
2: yeah, and that is frustrating. You bring up a good point that it could be made as a political statement because, I mean, the idea of people not dying to suicide should be a political one, would hope, yeah. And (laughs) surely, even people who are doing this as a political act, or people who feel that it's a sign of their manliness to have a loaded gun somewhere or something of this nature, surely they don't actually want someone
1: unintentionally to get hurt so uh, no of course not nobody there's no there's no bad players here but there's there's an underestimation of the risk yeah and that's where
2: these numbers are really eye-opening to me because it really does sound like the safety is not being practiced widely the risk is being wildly underestimated and and it does sound like the cultural understanding of suicide
1: is not in congruence with the facts No, I think that people don't even recognize, uh, people are always surprised when you talk about suicide numbers, even just the rates, even the fact that it's the number Mm -hmm. two killer of Americans under 40 or in the top 10 for all Americans. People don't recognize that. They're surprised by it. People are always surprised to hear the most basic numbers, that Mm -hmm. suicides represent the majority of gun deaths. 60% of gun deaths are suicide. Mm -hmm. It's not, I mean, you know, mass shootings have really brought this to national attention, as they should. I mean, they're tragic, but really they're relatively rare, still one or two a day, but compared to suicides. Mm -hmm. And I think bringing the emphasis back to suicide might be one of the pathways we have to sort of shaking the political polarization because Mm -hmm. it turns out that suicide, especially firearm suicide, tends to strike disproportionately the very people who advocate for more gun access. It's white men. It's white men in their 50s. Mm -hmm. It's rural white men in their 50s. That's who's dying by suicide by a long shot. I did a study in Maryland where I compared the sorts of suicides happening in rural areas in Maryland Mm -hmm. versus the urban and suburban areas. Suicide rates rurally are always much higher, all over the country. Wow, Mm -hmm. Rural suicide rates are much higher. They're also rising much faster, so the difference is getting even bigger. And Maryland's no exception. Mm -hmm. But it turns out that if you separate suicides by firearm suicides and non-firearm suicides, that... Only firearm suicides are higher in rural areas. In fact, non-firearm suicides, they're equal in rural and urban in Maryland. And among women, who much less often use guns, mm-hmm. suicide rates are much higher in urban areas. You're at much higher risk as a woman of dying by suicide in an urban
2: area than a rural one. Yeah, and what what they taught us in medical school, and perhaps you can bring some some figures to this, but the idea is that women actually attempt suicide more often than men, but men complete suicide more often than women, and that does come down to means because men tend to choose Absolutely. Firearms and women tend to choose more often medication or things that yeah. have a window of intervention before lethality. Nonviolent means.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's another telling way of looking at the really the importance of, of means, the means you use to, to attempt suicide. Yeah. Women do have a much higher rate of suicide attempt than men and a much higher rate of suicide ideation, thoughts mm-hmm. about suicide. Hmm. But men have almost four times the suicide rate, suicide completion rate, and the difference does come down to means. Women tend to overdose men tend to use guns. And even though women are attempting, attempting, and attempting, Mm and attempting, they're a less lethal attempt method. And one of the other ways to look at that, to see that more clearly, is to look at physicians. So Mm -hmm. among physicians, physicians have a relatively high suicide rate, not the highest rate as some articles have been pushing lately, but they have a relatively high suicide rate because it's a stressful job and... They, the difference between male, male and female suicide rates mm-hmm. is not nearly as stark. It's close to equal.
0: Interesting. And the
1: reason may be because among physicians, they're basically all overdosing or when the women overdose, they're physicians. So they have access to more dangerous medication yeah. mm-hmm. and they know what they're doing. They know how to overdose. And that cuts the difference right there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's an important way of looking at it and another way of emphasizing how what you use matters. In the hands of a female physician, an overdose is almost as lethal as a gun.
0: Mm. Yeah.
1: And so the difference disappears. Yeah. that's.
2: I'm glad we talked about physician suicide because I did want to discuss that a little bit. And you covered the the main thrust is just that with our medical knowledge, we have a relative certainty that what we do is going to be lethal if that's the road we choose to go down, which is really sad. But again, I think this idea of including means in the discussion of prevention is something that we need to... Bring into the larger cultural discussion in a bigger way.
1: At the end of the day, means restriction has been the only consistently effective way of decreasing suicide rates. Oh. The only one. We can decrease suicide rates a little bit with things mm-hmm. like constant contact, that kind of, I mean, carrying postcards, carrying contacts. And you know, the Henry Ford Center has been able to reduce suicide through a combination of talking about means, but also just more screening, more awareness, that kind of thing, but only in small amounts. Every time it's been tried, and that hasn't been replicated, every time it's been tried, reduction in access to lethal means has worked. I mentioned the paracetamol and the coal gas things in the UK. There's access to pesticides and herbicides in Southeast Asia. In the United States, because guns are our most common method of suicide, it's the most common method of suicide by far, every time we've passed a law that has in some way decreased the access to guns or put common sense... Mm -hmm barriers might be one word, or just sort of pathways to gun access. So for instance, Daniel Webster here at Hopkins did a great study early in his career where he looked at the effect of making it so that it was illegal to have an unlocked gun in the house when you have a child in the house. Hmm. Mm -hmm. So this is a hard law to enforce. Mm -hmm. But a law was passed that said that if you have Mm -hmm. a child in the house, you need to lock up the gun. And suicide rates in young boys dropped. Hmm. Mike Anestis, who is really... The giant in this field okay. has looked at policy changes across the board. have looked at background checks, mm-hmm. waiting periods, mm-hmm. junk gun laws. So, like, it's <laughs> that's complicated. We don't get into it, but any any law that regulates guns further has an anti-suicide effect. It's powerful. Kaufman wow. is a surgery resident that wrote a paper in uh, JAMA Internal Medicine mm-hmm. uh, where she just compared how strict a state's gun laws are. Like Mm -hmm. she scored how strict the gun laws are and found that the stricter the gun laws, the lower the suicide and homicide Uh rates are controlling for everything else. Everything we do to decrease access helps just like the bubble wrap and the paracetamol. Hmm. And uh, and so it needs to be an important part of any suicide prevention measure. I don't remember the question that you asked that I got to that rant from. (laughs) It's okay. Uh, The woods are a fine place to be.
2: (laughs) (laughs) We covered some of this, but I wonder if you have any other thoughts what are the, the myths that concern you most about suicide, particularly guns and suicide or opiates and suicide?
1: Well, I've said before, I think that the myth that suicide is not preventable, that if somebody decides to end their lives, they're going to end their lives. Yeah. That has been disproven again and again. We see it anecdotally as clinicians, yeah. but the epidemiologic study is much more convincing. It doesn't, doesn't pan out that way. Okay. That's the number
2: one myth. That does seem like the big one though. I did want to discuss one caveat to that. It's interesting. So you're saying that the vast majority of people who complete a suicide complete it after their first attempt. But we're taught in our psychiatric training that one of the biggest predictors of suicide is a past attempt. So you're saying that the majority of people don't go right back to attempt again, but for their friends and families and caregivers and providers, that's
1: still something to keep an eye on and it really speaks to the the unpredictability of suicide and Mm -hmm. and why we've struggled to predict it why our screeners have Mm -hmm. not helped us very much Mm -hmm. yes the number one risk factor for completed suicide is a history of suicide attempt Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, after that are things like having depression having substance abuse the demographic things I mentioned family issues you know all these things however having a history of suicide attempt only increases your risk threefold okay and as I said, the majority of people that die by suicide have never attempted before. Hmm. So our best predictor is a terrible predictor. Hmm. That's the bottom line. Mm. Okay. And, and so that's why things that have tried to address suicide from, the, from that end, from the back end, have not been as successful for things that just try to put up barriers towards means. To mm-hmm. so just stall somebody until they either get better or get help. Yeah, It's the same reasoning that we have when we put someone in the hospital in psychiatric hospital even when they don't want to be. Just basically holding someone for a day mm-hmm. is tremendously effective at keeping them from killing themselves. And then you know, every psychiatrist in the world has a million stories about the patient that, that fought and fought because they did not want to come into the hospital and then mm-hmm. thanked the doctor profusely when they recovered. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, because depression really changes what, how a person thinks and who they are when they're in severe enough, uh, having severe enough symptoms it really changes who who they are temporarily. I mean, I'm working with patients right now who they believe through and through that they're never going to get better and there's nothing that we can tell them. There's no fact we can offer them that's going to change their mind. And I've seen again and again that when they're treated, when they do recover, that sort of stance goes away. I
1: mean, it's just part of the disease. Yeah, that's absolutely true. They're temporarily someone that wants to kill themselves. Yeah. And if you can get them through that period, then they won't be someone that wants to kill themselves the next day. So it really as is As long as they didn't die.
2: It really is something that can be staved off and I think that's a real message of hope that just stalling somebody long enough for them to think it through can
1: make a huge difference. Yeah. Okay. I'd love for people to recognize that more. Both in terms of emphasizing the importance of access to lethal means. But also, when someone's suffering from depression, for them to realize that it is treatable. Yeah. You know, suicide is a particularly bad consequence of depression. Yeah. It, it's not the only one, it's certainly not the most common one. Depression is horrible. Mm. And what's so bad about it is people don't recognize how treatable it is, that mm-hmm. they can get help. There's this sense of hopelessness. And because of, you know, poor psychoeducation people don't realize that's even an illness mm-hmm. yeah and that's something
2: I, I was talking to my medical student about it's something i've had great conversations with wendy ingram about in the past is just the the huge toll that depression has on society and so many people don't even realize it's going on in terms of lost work days were you a
1: geisinger yeah
2: are you the guy wendy was working with yeah i never realized that yeah man two and two. Oh. <laughs> Wendy's my office mate. Yeah, no. <laughs> yeah, we're going to try and get her on the cast, too, at some point.
0: Awesome. She's a
2: PhD. Making the same point that depression is treatable. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's one, that's one of the reasons why I really wanted to, to talk to you, Paul, is that what we're trying to cover, especially in these early podcasts, are some of the health factors that can be approached from both the community side and the health professional side. Things where people outside the hospital and the medical profession have a huge role in potentially doing some good for the people around them. So this seemed like a large space where there's a lot of harm being done and even simple things are not being done to prevent it in a lot of cases. That's tragic.
0: One myth that I wanted to ask you about is I'm sure that some people who have loved ones who may be suicidal or may be depressed, they may have a fear that talking to that person about suicide might make them more think about it more and more likely to complete a suicide attempt. What would you say to somebody who had that concern?
1: That's a great thing to bring up. In fact, you know, we all train medical students and I know that's one of the questions medical mm-hmm. students often have when we tell them, listen, part of a good assessment is you're asking about suicidality. And they say, well, I don't want to trigger anything. Mm-hmm. That's just not how the brain works. I and mean, we've, we've studied this over and over again, but the idea that you could talk someone into it or remind someone that suicide was an option and that would somehow mm-hmm. make them suicidal is, uh, is a harmful myth. No, it's, if, no that's, it's, it's fantastically important to know that asking is the best thing you can do. That oftentimes you don't know if someone's suicidal until you ask. For clinicians, that means as part of your, your mm-hmm. history and physical. But for people that are around you suffering from depression, knowing that they can come to you if they do have those thoughts. Like If, mm-hmm. you, if, if you know someone's struggling from depression, they might not be suicidal at that moment. But you asking them how bad it's gotten, and ask them if they've had thoughts about wanting to hurt themselves. Even if they say no, and it's true that no, that lets them know that later on, if they do have those thoughts, mm-hmm. you're someone that they can come to with that. There are people they can come to with that. I say the same thing to primary care doctors. Mm-hmm. I don't necessarily think that you know universally screening everyone for suicide mm-hmm. is helpful because we don't have any good predictive tests. But I do advocate that screening because. It tells the patients this primary care doctor's office is one of the places you can go, that you can talk to a doctor about depression, about suicide, about all those things. It just lets them know this is a place like that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, no, I think it's a dangerous myth that bringing up suicide would make people suicidal.
0: I agree. I think that was a really great part of our training in medical school, how we were told that bringing that up is not going to make anybody follow through on an attempt or think about it or dwell on it. And I've found just in my personal experience so far that it really hasn't. People are usually just relieved that they can talk to you about it. Absolutely.
2: Yeah, and I think that relates to another idea that, again, I don't have the specific numbers on this, but the vast majority of people who complete a suicide have seen uh, either a psychiatric, a psychological, or... Uh, some other medical professional mm-hmm. within weeks or a month yeah. of...
1: Yeah, for the numbers, the, the best study, I think, I don't remember the first author, but the final author was Jane Pearson, who's fantastic. She did an analysis or review of many studies that looked at that and found that it was, I want to say, 42% of people had seen their doctor within one month wow. of completing suicide. Wow. So that's
2: where, if there's any way we can catch any of those people, and if people out there are struggling with this, if you speak out to your providers, I promise you they do care and they do want to help, and they can potentially get you on a different path. So we talked a lot about protective measures, Mm -hmm. which can be taken. We talked a lot about what compromises are available to help in cultures that feature guns prominently. So, Paul... Can you tell us a little bit about your ideal suicide prevention plan? Like if you suppose you have a friend or family member who is severely depressed, you're very worried about them. What measures do you want a to hospitalize? Okay Fair.
1: All right. What what's your threshold? <laughs>
0: <laughs> you, you
1: painted a pretty bleak picture. You're a friend or relative who's <laughs> severely depressed, suicidal. Yeah, I mean, low bar for. Uh, well, I'm a psychiatrist. Yeah, so, so this is this for is me. I'm bit- going to evaluate. You know, but if I'm not a psychiatrist, yeah. This, yeah,
2: yeah. So I think this is a good teachable moment. People out there who don't have our psychiatric training, what do you think should trigger someone to say, "Hey"? we should like call an ambulance to get this person to the hospital whether they want to or not. I'm not worried about them. What do you
1: think that threshold should be? Wow, it's, that's such a complicated question, such a good question. It um, obviously depends on so many things in mm-hmm. mm-hmm. your relationship with a person, that person's history, which you often don't know as a layperson dealing with a loved one or just someone. Yeah. So the first step would be to talk to them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Say, I'm, I'm worried about you. This is what we were just talking about. Mm-hmm. Ask them about this and say, listen, you're clearly struggling. Have you had thoughts about hurting yourself? Don't be scared to ask that question. Mm -hmm. They may or may not be honest with you, but they'll at least know that you're willing to hear them. And if you have any suspicion and you have no one else to contact, there's often other people you can contact. There's often their doctor, someone that knows them better than you do, like their spouse or Mm -hmm. something like that. But if that's not an option, you can call 911. Mm -hmm. And People are surprised to hear that's a very common, maybe I think one of the most common 911 calls that come in are mm-hmm. people worried about someone who's suicidal mm-hmm. or psychiatrically ill in general. And what happens after you call 911 is in most states, the person will be taken to an emergency room mm-hmm. where a mental health specialist, ideally ideally a psychiatrist, mm-hmm. will do some sort of evaluation and get to the bottom of things better than a layperson can and make the decision alongside the patient themselves if they're able mm-hmm. but whether hospitalization is appropriate voluntary hospitalization or in extreme situations, involuntary hospitalization temporarily. Mm -hmm. And state-by-state laws vary. But the bottom line is that you are potentially saving a life in doing that. Remember how common suicide death is. Number two killer for anyone under 40 in America. So you're potentially saving a life. And yes, there are drawbacks. You might anger this person. Mm -hmm. Many times they'll later thank you for it. Sometimes they won't. Sometimes Mm -hmm. they'll never speak to you again, but you've saved their life. Potentially. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, because of that, my bar is low. My mm-hmm. threshold is low. Um, especially, you know, I have psychiatric training, and even I feel like I can not predict suicide with accuracy. It's unpredictable. And so, I would lean on the side of conservative safety. Okay.
0: All right. For someone who either takes their loved one to the hospital or someone who's having thoughts of suicide and comes themselves. You've described what will happen in the emergency room. Someone will evaluate them. What can they expect or anticipate to happen after that? What What's the typical sort of time course for somebody who is having feeling suicidal? They go to the hospital. What happens? What's their day looking like when they're on the psychiatric yeah. unit?
1: So first of all, it's not as necessary that you would go into psychiatric unit. Yeah. You go to the emergency room, most people would be evaluated and either... You know, given some advice and released, or most commonly set up with an appointment with an outpatient therapist or psychiatrist who they would go to in a week or so and follow up. That's, that's the most common. But in those situations where someone's very, very ill and it's an emergent situation, they might be admitted to the psychiatric unit. Now, on the psychiatric unit, things vary. From unit to unit, mm-hmm. but most of them will be you'll have a psychiatrist, you'll have a, a bunch of nurses, often mm-hmm. they'll be therapists, and you'll, your day to day will involve group therapy, mm-hmm. individual therapy, sometimes, not always, because this is a crisis situation. Mm-hmm. It's not psychiatry as you'd imagine in the outpatient setting where you're, I don't know, sitting on a couch or something mm-hmm. like that, but really just to get someone just better enough that they'll be safe when they leave. Mm -hmm. The goal isn't to get someone 100% back to their normal. Most of that work is happening later after you're referred to outpatient, but it's Mm -hmm. just to get you through that crisis. So you won't be there very long, but you'll be stabilized and and you'll meet doctors who can explain a little bit more about what the illness that you're suffering from is Mm -hmm. and teach you a little bit about it. Doctor comes from the word for teacher. Mm-hmm. You'll learn about the illness and you will get treatment and you'll be referred to an outpatient provider who will continue treatment at your discretion.
0: I think that's great to explain because I feel like often people may feel like, oh, I'm going to be committed for you know two weeks or a month or something, I won't get out. So it's nice to sort of have an understanding of what they can expect and that yeah. it's more so just to get them through the really critical phase of... yeah suicide.
1: And you know, decades ago it was much longer hospitalizations. Um, I mean, really managed care has contributed to it being a little shorter. And some hospitals do give you the option of staying a little bit longer, Mm -hmm. but someone who's not psychotic, who's Mm -hmm. not acutely hallucinating and delusional is rarely kept against their will for, for very long. And the real treatment then comes when they're discharged.
2: All right. I think that about covers what I had hoped yeah. to ask. Anything else from your side?
0: No, nothing else that I can think of.
2: All right. Anything else you'd like to share with our international listening public? We have we have six listens in Poland and I think three in...
0: In India, right?
1: Yeah. <laughs> so.
0: You're at the cutting edge, Dr. Nestad.
1: <laughs> I have nothing to share with the international listeners. <laughs> 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 All right. Well... Dr.
2: Nestat, thank you very much for your time um, and sharing your knowledge with us. This is a topic that I think is going to have a big impact on the, the whole country and the, the whole world in the decades to come, and hopefully we can help give people
1: information to steer it in a more positive direction. Yeah, I think we are making some progress. I mean, in the United States, the rates are going up, but globally they're actually going down, Yeah, um, which may have something to do with the guns here, but probably have many other factors. But yeah, we're making progress globally.
2: Okay. Thank you for joining us for another fine episode of the podcast Against Disease. We hope that you enjoyed listening as much as we enjoyed making it.
0: Absolutely. And we will end by telling you how you can reach us, find us, talk to us, tweet at us, shout at us, cry to us, anything you like.
2: So we've got An electronic mail address, which is againstdisease at gmail.com. Tell us how much you like us, dislike us, represent everything that you are sworn to dismantle, whatever.
0: (laughs) We have a Twitter handle, which is at againstdisease. You can tell us things in 150 characters or less.
2: Didn't they change the limit? I don't know.
0: I don't know if they did.
2: (laughs) Um. And we've got an Instagram, which is the same as our Twitter handle. It's also at Against Disease. Noticing a pattern here.
0: You can send us messages. I guess they're called direct messages. You can like our photos and share them and keep using hashtag acoustic foam everywhere you go. Keep it alive.
2: And lastly, we've got our Facebook page, which the easiest way to get there is to just look up humanity against disease and if you know us or know anybody who knows us you've probably already been hassled to join the group but if not please feel welcome
0: absolutely and that's kind of the deal with humanity against disease on social media
2: yep which is still bad if you listen to episode one but this part is fine
0: yeah we're okay
2: (laughs) all right Have, have a nice drive or walk or listen